0: Good evening, everyone. It is good to see your smiling faces out here again tonight. I just want to thank you for your commitment to come each night. It is a commitment to come and spend 23 nights in the busy, fast-paced world that we live in. There's so many things going on. And the devil does everything that he can to try and distract us and pull us away from the better things. Tonight, our topic is Jesus on burying the past. And so let's begin with a word of prayer. Loving Father, You know the end from the beginning. You know us better than we know ourselves. And Lord... For some of us here, we didn't start out very well. It may have been that as a teenager, a young adult, that we went the way of the world. We rebelled against You. And we fought against the Word of Truth. But Lord, You were persistent. You never gave up on us. And You have pulled us out of the world and You've set us on a firm foundation. And we are so grateful and thankful for that. But Lord, even though we may not have started out well, we want to end well. And Lord, we see that we are at the end of time and this world is unraveling and we're going to soon have the coming of Jesus. And Lord, we want to be prepared for that. So our prayer is that You would give us wisdom. Be with us tonight as we dive into our next topic. And Lord, show us what You would have us do. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name, Amen. There's no need for you to raise your hand, but I'm wondering if there's anyone here who has ever been in a place or in a time when you could have used a little extra cash. We, we've probably all been in that situation, right? Right? And a few years ago, there was a young man who was a student at a Christian college who found himself in that position. He didn't have enough money to pay for his next year of schooling, and he knew if he got a job in the summer making minimum wage, it wasn't going to be enough to pay for his college. And so he began to look through the newspaper and he found a company that was offering jobs to college students to go into the far reaches of the forests of Canada and to cut wood. And at first he was very reluctant to do that because he had heard that lumberjacks were a real rough bunch. And that they were always getting into what he would call trouble and didn't have faith. So they were smoking and drinking and doing drugs and and uh, having illicit relationships and all of this. And he knew that as a Christian, that would probably not be a good environment to be in. After all, he knew his Bible. And he knew that the Bible says that by beholding, we become changed. And he also knew that the Bible said that bad company corrupts good character. But he really needed the money. And so he decided to apply for the job. And he got the job and he went out and he worked with these lumberjacks. And sure enough, it was just like he thought that it was going to be. It was a rough environment for a Christian to be in. But he spent the summer working with them and at the end of the summer he had a really nice paycheck. And it was enough money to pay for his next year of schooling. And so he went back to his Christian college and he began to tell his friends about his summer activities. And someone said to him, "How?" How did it work out for you as a Christian being in that kind of an environment where you are hanging out with people that don't know God, don't love God, are slaves to sin and addiction? And the man said to his friends, he said, actually, it was very easy. You see, what I did is I just determined ahead of time that I was going to make sure that nobody knew that I was a Christian. You see, that's what happens when we allow the world into our lives. And in the last days of earth's history, neutrality will not do God is calling every one of us to take a public stand for Him. And we have to realize that we can't sit on the fence and think that we're going to be okay because the fence belongs to the devil. And God is calling us not only out of the world, but He's calling us out of the apostate mother church and the apostate harlot daughter churches, and He's calling us to make a stand for Him. And that stand is that we would stand on the Ten Commandments of God. And that includes the fourth commandment, to keep the Sabbath day holy which the devil is doing everything that he can to try and pull people away from. In fact, God says that that is going to be a sign between Him and you that you truly are with Him. Because here is the bottom line of the days in which we find ourselves living. It is coming down to this. You are either keeping the commandments of God and you are worshiping Him as the Creator or you are worshiping the beast. And the Bible says if you're worshiping the beast, you're really worshiping the dragon. And so even though we may not realize it, we may think that we're worshiping God, but if we are not worshiping Him according to the way He tells us to worship Him, then we're really worshiping the dragon. And so we can't be on the fence in these last days. God is calling us to make a decision and a public declaration of that decision. You see, we have been studying the Word of God in our series here that we're doing, and we are finding Bible truths that can be the foundation upon which we stand. And so that's why we've chosen this theme for our series. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. But if it's not in the Bible, or it disagrees with the Bible, then it's not for me. It can't be trusted. I need to stand on the foundation of truth. And the book of Revelation reveals a God of incredible love who never forces anyone. He is never going to coerce you or take away your free will and tell you what you have to do. Throughout the book of Revelation, He is repeatedly inviting us to come to Him freely. And He has brought you here and He is presenting these truths to you, but then He leaves them with you to make a choice, to decide what you're going to do with it. Because here's the thing, every single person who gets to heaven is going to arrive there with their free will still intact. You understand that, right? It's all about free will. It's all about our choice. And our free will will still be intact because by our own free will, our own choosing, we will have surrendered our will to Him and we will have placed Him on the throne of our heart. And if He says we do that, then He has given us the promise of eternal life. And so every person has a choice to make. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 says this, Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is pictured as the Lamb who has died for us to gain our ultimate freedom. And God is calling people to be faithful to Him. He's calling us lovingly to keep His commandments. Not because we're trying to buy our way into heaven. Not because we're trying to somehow earn heaven. But we keep His commandments because we love Him. And the greatest Act of worship that there is, is obedience. And you obey the one you love. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? And so he is inviting us to publicly declare our loyalty to him, to declare our allegiance to him. And so the question is, how do we take that stand? Right? That, that's an important question. He's asking us to take that stand, so how do we do it? And Revelation points us in the right direction. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 says, To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. And so the question is, does God give us a visible symbol for being washed in the blood of Christ? And the answer is, yes, He does. And that symbol is baptism. Right? Baptism is a symbol of commitment. It is a symbol of loyalty. It is a symbol of allegiance. And Jesus Christ instructed His disciples and us About baptism. Let's take a look at it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. That's going to be page 1150 of your seminar Bible. Matthew 28. And I want you to notice what Jesus says. He has died on the cross. He has gone into the tomb. He has been resurrected. He has spent 40 days with His disciples. Now He's getting ready to go back to heaven and He gives His final instructions. Notice what He says starting in verse 18. He says, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so here we see Jesus telling His disciples, go and baptize. And that is a direction to us, a command to us as well, we ourselves are to be baptized and then we're to go and baptize others, right? That's what He's telling us to do. And when you are baptized, you are declaring your allegiance to Christ, you are taking a public stand and you are showing that you are on His side. And even when we realize that and we recognize that, yet because of the deceptions that are going on in the world, there are many people that are confused about what it means to be baptized. And it seems like there's all kinds of ways in the Christian church to be baptized. There are some churches that sprinkle water on babies. There are some that pour water on a baby or a child. There's one denomination that practices olive oil baptism. And I even heard about a church that was baptizing people by sprinkling rose petals on them. And now, apparently, in the 21st century, you can even get a baptism by mail. I heard a story about a pastor who took his youth group up into the mountains and got them all in the snow and then covered them all up with snow and said, there, now you're baptized. And when one of the parents questioned him on that, he said, well, it doesn't matter if the water is liquid or solid. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is that pastor right? And why is it that in the Christian church we have all of these different methods when the Bible seems to be very clear that there's only one true method of baptism? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5 says, there's one Lord, one faith, and one biblical method of baptism. Now, I hope that you would agree with me that if we want to discover what the true baptism is in the Bible, that we really ought to just go and look at the time when Jesus was baptized, and we ought to look and see what He did, and we can probably feel pretty comfortable and safe that if we do it that way, that we're doing it right. Would you agree with that? I don't think if we do it the way He had it done, that we can go wrong. And so we need to see how it was that Jesus was baptized. And notice in Mark chapter 1, verse 9, it says that it came to pass in those days that Jesus come from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And if you go back and you read in the Gospels about Jesus' baptism, you'll notice that it says the reason that John was baptizing in the Jordan is because there was much... Water. So apparently, there is much water that is needed for baptism. If you go to Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to Him and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon Him. Now, I want to point out to you that it says when Jesus was baptized, He came up out of the water. So if we put two and two together, we would say that if He came up out of the water, then that means He must have gone down into the water. Does that make sense? And so here we see that when Jesus was baptized, He was totally immersed in water. He was totally submerged. Matthew 3.17 continues and says, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is My beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. And so here we see from the Word of God that Jesus was baptized. He was totally immersed in water. And and we could say that that was a significant moment in His life. And we would have to conclude from that that when we get baptized, it should be a significant moment in our lives as well, right? But I want you to notice two very special or specific things about Jesus' baptism. Number one, we see that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus to give Him supernatural spiritual power to face temptation of the evil one. We see in the Scriptures that He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that was visibly seen for our benefit, right? But when the Holy Spirit came down, it filled him, and now he had the power to do God's will. And so the implication there is that the Bible also is telling us, promising us, that when we are baptized, that we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now there's one caveat to that, and I'm going to explain that a little bit later. But the idea is, when we go down into the water of baptism, that that's when we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It came upon Jesus, and the Holy Spirit also comes upon us. And He received the power at His baptism. And as we lay hold of faith we also can receive that power. That's when God gives us the power to keep His commandments, right? We can't do it on our own. We need the power of God in our lives. And notice what the Scripture says. Acts chapter 10, verse 38 says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. The second thing that we notice at His baptism is that the Father spoke to Him from heaven and said in Matthew 3.17, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Every time that a child of God follows that call of Christ to be baptized and they take that public stand we can be certain that all of heaven rejoices. Jesus said when one lost sinner is found, that all of the angels rejoice, right? And when you are baptized, you can be pretty certain that the Father also says of you, this is My beloved Son, this is My beloved daughter, in them I am well pleased." God is pleased when we do what He says we should do, right? And so He was pleased with His Son, He's going to be pleased with us. Believers down through the centuries have experienced the joy of making a full commitment to Christ through baptism. And you know, sometimes you might be the only member of your family that is baptized, You might be the only member of your tribe or your village or your community. Because here's the thing, when God calls us to baptism, He doesn't call us corporately. He calls us individually. He is calling for each one of us to make that decision for Him and publicly reveal That we have made a stand for him. And he certainly did that with the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, right? Here is this Ethiopian eunuch who is clearly a believer because he's come all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship, and now he's leaving and he's going back home and he stops the chariot or cart that he's in and he is reading the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. And he is reading in chapter 53 where it talks about Jesus being led as a lamb to the slaughter and dying on our behalf. And God miraculously brings Philip to him and Philip overhears him reading, and Philip goes over to him and he asks him, do you know what you're reading? And the eunuch says to him, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? And so Philip is sitting there with him explaining to him that Jesus is the Christ, that they just crucified him, and he is the Messiah. Now let's pick up the story. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. 12.62 And I want you to notice what the Bible says starting in verse 36. Now as they, that's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he was baptized. And so here we see that Philip answers his questions. He's already a believer. He's already repented of his sin. But now he's given some more information and he realizes that Jesus is the Messiah, the one he's been hoping for, and he puts his trust and his faith in Him and he says, I want to be baptized. And so they go down into the water. I heard a story years ago about a pastor who was performing a baptism on an infant and he was sprinkling water on that baby. And he understood from the Scriptures that baptism was full immersion. And so he's having this conflict in his mind and he's trying to explain to his audience what he's doing. And so he says to the audience, you know, the Bible says that to be baptized, you need to go down into the water. And he starts talking about the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And he's describing that. And he says, now you know, when the Bible says that they went down into the water, it doesn't really mean that they went into the water. It just means that they were close to roundabout or nearby. And so after the service, a young man in his early 30s comes up to him and he says, Pastor, I am so grateful that you explained that today. You have really helped me because I've had this conflict in my heart. And the pastor says, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, you see, I always wondered how Jonah could have lived in the belly of that fish for three days, but now I realize he wasn't really in the belly of the fish. He was just close to, round about, or nearby. And then I had a problem with those three young Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace, and now I realize that they weren't really in the furnace. They were just close to, round about, or nearby. And then I had a problem with Daniel in the lion's den, and I couldn't figure out how he could survive in that, but now I realize it was just like, well, maybe he was at the zoo, he was just kind of close to roundabout or nearby. And you see, Pastor, I'm a wicked man, and I've really been concerned about that lake of fire. But now I realize I'm not going to be in that lake of fire. I'm just going to be close to, roundabout or nearby. It's kind of like sitting by the fire pit roasting marshmallows. And you know what, Pastor? I was going to be here next week, but you know what? I think I'll just be close to, roundabout or nearby. And so maybe we'll see you again some other time. You see, the problem that we have is when we try to make the Word of God say what we want it to, rather than just reading it and taking it literally for what it says. And that is a huge problem in the day that we live. And so what are the truths about baptism? First of all, we see here that the Ethiopian eunuch accepted Christ as his Savior. And then his baptism indicated that he was taking a public stand and both him and Philip went down into the water and the Ethiopian eunuch was fully immersed because the whole person has to be cleansed. The whole person sinned and the whole person needs to be submerged. And you can't get that with sprinkling. If you're going to be totally cleansed, you have to go totally under the water. In fact, you may not be aware of it, but the word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to dip, to immerse, or to plunge under the water. And so, if a Greek woman wanted to dye some clothes a different color, she wouldn't just sprinkle some of the dye on there. She would baptizo it. She would dip it completely into the dye so that it would change the color, right? And you know, archaeology reveals that there were many churches in, in, in the ancient world that for centuries practiced full immersion baptism here is a picture of a church in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey and you can see by the size of the pool here that it was for full immersion for adults and that's how they were baptized. Here's another church in Philippi, and you can see the man in the picture standing there in the baptistry, and they're excavating that, digging that out. St. John of Lateran is the second largest church in all of Rome, it's second only to St. Peter's Cathedral. But if you go back through the narrow alleyway into the back of the church, you will discover this remarkable baptistry there. Our Roman Catholic friends practiced baptism by immersion as late as the 13th century. And the baptistries in their ancient churches clearly reveal that the church practiced Bible baptism by immersion for hundreds of years. Here in this picture, you have this tower, the bell tower, over on the right, better known today as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. But right next to it is a cathedral with a baptistry in it. And so, there are many examples of that. Here's one in Cappadocia, which is Turkey. And it was a city of refuge deep into the caves. And this is in southeast Turkey, where Christians found refuge from those who were persecuting them in the Middle Ages. And if you go through those carved rocks into the secret city within, you will find this baptistry that was honed out of the rock. And here you see a couple of men in this picture doing a mock baptism, right? And so clearly, the early church practiced immersion for centuries according to what the Bible says. It wasn't until 1311 AD that the Catholic Church convened the Council of Ravenna and they said at that time that the sprinkling and pouring were officially accepted as equally valid as immersion in the rite of baptism. Now, I want you to notice something that it says in Faith of Our Fathers, page 277. This is a book that explains the basic tenets of the Catholic faith. And notice what they say. This is James Cardinal Gibbons who writes this. He says, "...for several centuries after the establishment of Christianity... Baptism was usually conferred by immersion. That word confer simply means this is how we used to do it. And we did it by immersion. And he says for centuries that's the way it was. But he doesn't end there. He keeps going. He says, but since the 12th century, the practice of baptizing by infusion, that's sprinkling, has prevailed in the Catholic church as this manner is attended with less inconvenience than baptism by immersion. And so here is this Catholic priest who is saying that it is the Catholic church that introduced sprinkling as a more convenient method of baptism. Now friends, we need to be very careful when we start using convenience as a reason for doing something rather than following the faithfulness of the Word of God. Amen? But here's the thing. I mean, we have to have compassion on our Catholic brothers and sisters. Because you can imagine that in that time that there were many people that were putting off their baptism until late in life. And now you find yourself in a position where there are many people that it's going to be very difficult or even impossible to get them into the watery grave of baptism. And so you can see how gradually over many years that sprinkling was accepted as an equally valid form of baptism with immersion. Remember how it works. A little error with truth over thousands of years and pretty soon nobody questions it. Pretty soon it's just looked at as gospel truth even though it totally contradicts what the Bible says. Now during this series we have seen many of these practices that have slipped into the church and have no foundation in Scripture. For example, Sunday worship and the concept of the immortal soul and hell burning forever and ever, and now baptism by sprinkling, right? All of these things that the devil is using at the end of time to deceive us and pull us away from keeping the commandments of God. And now, today, God is calling us back. He's calling us back to the Bible, back to the true biblical method of baptism. And that brings up the question how about infant baptism? Is that biblical? I want to point out to you that the Bible is very clear that baptism is about a commitment. And it's also very clear from the Word of God that something has to happen before baptism you go to acts chapter 2 verse 38 and peter is given a sermon and the bible says the people are cut to the heart and they ask him what must we do and peter says repent and be baptized And so, from the Word of God itself, we see that the first thing that must happen before baptism is you have to repent. Now, let me ask you a question. Can an infant repent? Can an infant make a commitment to the Word of God? It is impossible for an infant to do that, right? That's common sense. We know that. Because we have probably all had children and grandchildren. And so we realize that. But again, we want to have compassion on our Catholic friends. Because we have to realize that at this time, the mortality rate of infants was incredibly high. And the people wanted to have some confidence that their children were saved. And so you can imagine them coming to the priests and saying, how can I make sure that my child is saved? And rather than pointing them to the truth, to the Word of God, they say, well, we've got to do something about this. And so they start baptizing infants. Right? But here's the problem. When we start doing that, we just open up this can of worms. Right? Because here's the thing, the Bible has to fit together like pieces of a puzzle. And if you take one piece and you start messing with it, it messes up all these others. So think about what happens here. What we're really saying is, God can't sort this one out, we're going to have to help Him, right? We're going to have to do something so that we have this assurance that our children are going to be saved. And they totally ignored the part of the Bible that talks about something called the age of accountability. Right, And the Bible is very clear that there comes a point in time in life when we are able to start making decisions for ourselves. That's roughly about the age of 12 or 13. And it's different for children. Some might be able to do it a little earlier. Some might take longer. But there is this point when you are held accountable by God. But before that... I don't think that God is going to not allow a child that died before the age of accountability not to get into heaven simply because they didn't repent. God is big enough to sort all that out. And so we don't have to try and fix God's problem, right? And here's another problem with this. When you start saying... That a child has to be baptized in case they die before they get that age of accountability. What are we really saying? We're really saying that that water that we're sprinkling them with is somehow holy and that transfers to them. That's a pagan idea, not a biblical idea. And there are many churches today that say they have holy water, right? And what is that? I'm telling you, it's tap water that they somehow pray over or they put some ashes in it or something and somehow miraculously, now it's holy water, right? As if somehow that's going to transfer to the person. But the Holy Spirit is the one that's holy, Not the water. The water is just a symbol. Right? Now, I will say this. I totally believe that child dedication is biblical. Because you look at Hannah bringing her son Samuel to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord. You see Jesus being brought by His parents to the temple to be dedicated. It is totally biblical. And the idea is that you're dedicating this child to God and you want God to bless them. But here's the thing. It's not the child that's dedicated. It's really the parents, right? It's the parents taking a public stand and saying, I am going to raise this child in the admonition of the Lord and I'm going to teach them the Word of God. And so the dedication is really for the parents and not for the child. So, what is the meaning of Bible baptism? Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. That's going to be page 1298. If you're still in the book of Acts, just go one book to the right. Romans chapter 6. And I want you to notice what the Word of God says. Paul is talking to the church in Rome. He's talking to us. And he says in verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk In the newness of life. And so, what is this saying? It's saying that when you go down into the watery grave of baptism, that you are putting Christ on the throne of your heart. You're surrendering your life to Him and you are dying to self. Now, remember, all of this is just symbolic. And so, what happens? When you go down into the watery grave and you are totally submerged, you have to hold your breath, don't you? That is symbolically saying that your breath has left you and you have died. And the only way that the symbology can fit is if you're totally under the water. And now you have died to self You are buried, all of your sins are washed away, all of the guilt is gone, and now you come up out of the water, you are resurrected to new life. You are given a new heart, because God can't fix your old heart. It's desperately wicked. And so He gives you a new heart. You're a new creation, Paul says. And now you come out and you walk in the newness of life and you now have the Holy Spirit. You have the power of God to keep the commandments of God. He writes His law in your mind and in your heart and now you can do it. Now you have the power, right? And so what does baptism represent? It represents you dying to that old sinful way of life in that you're burying your sins in the watery grave and you are rising up again out of water into walk in the newness of life. You know, it's one thing to get a new car or a new suit or a new dress, new pair of shoes, But I'm going to tell you something. When you get a new life, that's amazing. I love to see that. When you see someone that has totally surrendered their heart, they just light up. Right? They are a different person. And now they don't think the same. Now they don't do the same. Now they are walking in the newness of life. And you are raised up out of that water. And so this is the symbol of the resurrection. But think about that deception that is going on in the world right now. The popular belief of today is that corporate Sunday worship is the symbol of the resurrection. But the Bible is very clear that baptism is the symbol of resurrection. You come out of the water filled with the Spirit of God, and now you are going forth to live a new life. God doesn't save you so that you can keep on sinning. He saves you and He empowers you to keep His commandments. And if you mess up, you repent, and you get back up and you keep going. Right? That's what God is doing for us. Baptism does not mean, however, that you're perfect. It just means that you're committed. Right? And so if someone says, well, should I wait till I'm perfect to get baptized? It's never going to happen. And when the Bible talks about being perfect like your Father is perfect, it's talking about being mature. It's talking about being surrendered to Him. And not talking about you never make a mistake. Right? Baptism doesn't mean that you're perfect. But it does mean that you're committed. You're committed to God. And here's the other thing. Baptism is not the end of the Christian life. It's only the beginning. It is a definite decision to walk with God and to go into that watery grave. And it does put you on a new path. But it's not the end. Let me show you this. We've looked at Matthew 28 already, but let's go back there. Matthew 28, page 1150. I want to show you this because sometimes we read the Word of God and we just kind of peruse it and skip over it. And we don't pause long enough to allow it to sink in. And I want you to notice what Jesus is actually saying here. Page 1150. Matthew 28. Let's go back to verse 18. And notice what Jesus says. All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and do What? Make disciples of all nations, then do what? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, then do what? Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus is saying here. The first thing that He says is, go and make disciples. Now, what do you have to do to make a disciple? You have to teach them, right? You have to teach them the Word of God. You have to teach them the deceptions and the false teachings and point them out and point them to the truth. That's teaching. That's the first thing that he does. Go and teach people. Then he says, baptize them and then teach them some more. Because once you're baptized, that doesn't mean you know everything, right? You've still got more learning to do. In fact, that learning is going to take you the rest of your life, right? So that we can become more and more like Christ. So that we can have more and more of a living connection with Him. And so baptism isn't the end, it's only the beginning. Teach them, baptize them, but then you've got a whole life long of teaching, learning, right? And that's the thing. We want to learn and we want to grow. But the only way that you can grow is as you see those truths, give yourself to them. You surrender your will to the Word of God. Right? That's how you're going to continue to grow. And if you don't do that, you're not going to grow. Let me give you an example of this. Many years ago, I was much younger, and I was having a conversation with an elderly woman very much older than me. And she said to me, Sonny, I have been a Christian for 40 years. And I said to her, praise God, I haven't. I think that's wonderful. But let me ask you a question. Do you have 40 years of experience with God Or do you have one year experience 40 times? You see, there are many Christians today that don't look any different than the world because they are not growing. They're not surrendering their will to the will of God and the truth of God's Word. And the only way we're going to continue to grow is as we surrender and allow Him to make the changes in us that we can't make in ourselves. And so we've got to continue to learn and continue to grow. And here's another thing. Baptism gives us a new sense of freedom. Before you give your heart to Jesus Christ, the Bible's very clear, you are a slave to sin and addictions. You are a slave to the world. You are a slave to the carnal nature. And you can't even chase after God, even if you wanted to. There's nothing in you to want Him. He has to draw you close first. And so we're slaves. We can't do anything to save ourselves. But now, when you have given your heart to Christ and you are baptized and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, now you have a power that you didn't have before. Now you have a freedom that you didn't have before. Because you were a slave and you couldn't follow Christ, but now you're free to follow Him. You don't understand what I'm saying? Now you have this freedom in Him. You're no longer a slave to sin. And now you have the power to overcome sin. And the only way we can do that is if we keep surrendering to Him and ask Him to help us to keep growing. So baptism gives us a new spiritual power in our lives. So what happens when we are baptized? First of all, every sin is forgiven. Let's look at this. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and notice what it says. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for what? For the remission of sins. Here is where we have our sins washed away, right? And how many people does Peter say should be baptized? Everyone, right? Let everyone be baptized. Now someone might say, but what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized. And clearly he's saved, so if he didn't have to be baptized, neither do I. People do that, right? But we need to think that through logically. We're reasonable people. Let's think it through. This man, clearly, Jesus knew his heart. Because when He said, remember Me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus said, I'm going to save you. You're going to be in heaven with Me. So clearly, He knew His heart. Now, do you think, given the situation, it's obvious, right, that He couldn't come down from the cross? And so he couldn't be baptized. And so in that case, Christ's baptism covers him. But do you think that if he's truly surrendered to God and God says that everyone needs to be baptized, do you think that if He could have, He would have? I have to believe that He would have, right? You see, here's the thing. Even God makes exceptions. The problem is that we always want to be the exception. We want to be the one that doesn't have to follow the rules, right? And we want God to excuse us. But it doesn't work that way. If you have the capacity, then you should do what God says. And if you truly love Him, you will, right? And so the Bible says that it's for everyone, not just for a few people. Now, the second thing that happens at baptism is that you're given the Spirit. Notice what Mark chapter 1, verse 10 says. And immediately coming up from the water, he, that's John the Baptist, saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him, that's Jesus. And so this was a visible manifestation for our benefit so that we could see that when you are baptized, that's when you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's another one here. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. We read it already, but there's more to it. Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and after your baptism or at the time of your baptism, you shall receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what the Bible is telling us. And so when God calls you to baptism, He cleanses you, and He promises you the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower you so that you can live for Him. And then the next thing we see is that when we are baptized, we are adopted into God's family. So when you are baptized, you are not only baptized into Christ, you are also baptized into His church. Notice Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Then those who gladly received His word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls, that's persons, 3,000 people were added to the church. That's what it says, right? Added to them. So I want you to think about this for a minute. As you have been coming to this Jesus on Prophecy seminar, have you been learning more truths? Let me see your hands. Who's who's learned something new since they've been here? i got my hand up too. Because I'll tell you that the Word of God is a double-edged sword. And when I'm preaching to you, it's cutting me as well, right? And so we learn. You know, I don't know why there aren't more people here, right? Because when we are learning, we don't know it all. I learn something new every time I do one of these series and I'm the one giving it, right? Because we got to dig into the Word to get it. And so, we've been here and the Spirit of God has been speaking to our hearts. The Spirit of God has been drawing us to Him. He has been revealing the truth. He has been revealing the deceptions that are going on. And He is showing us that when we are baptized, we're not only baptized into Him, but we're baptized into His church. Look at this verse. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's what we would call today the Gospels, the New Testament, and fellowship, and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. When we are baptized, we become a part of of God's body of believers. His Sabbath-keeping, commandment-keeping people. And if we continue steadfastly in the Word, we learn more and more truths. And we want to choose a church, we want to be a part of a church that keeps the commandments of God, right? Because Revelation chapter 14 verse 12 tells us that that's God's people in the end of time. They keep the commandments of God. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 and 12 says God is seeking for a people that obey him in the end of time. Revelation chapter 12 verse 17 says that God's last day people keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus. And so we see the signs there that God's showing us where we should be. We should be a part of God's last day people. That's what He's calling us to. And so when you are baptized, your sins are forgiven, your life is cleansed, you receive the Holy Spirit, and you become a part of God's worldwide Sabbath-keeping fellowship all around the world. It is an international community of faith. And you know, if you have Christ in your heart, you're going to want to be at church, right? You know, I really struggle with people that aren't in church every week. Because I'm really concerned about their salvation. Because if you have Christ in you, and it was His habit to be in church every Sabbath, why wouldn't you be? Right? And I know, you know, if I have a cold and I'm going to give germs to someone else, I wouldn't come. But if it's just, oh, I don't feel like it today, or oh, my back hurts, no, I'm going to be there. When my wife and I take a vacation, we don't take a vacation from God. We go to church wherever we are. Sometimes we drive two hours to get to a church, right? We never take a vacation from God. Why? Because He's in our heart. Because we've been baptized into His church. We want to be with our brothers and sisters and we want to go and meet them. We haven't met them yet, right? We want to go and we want to be with them. And that's why Paul says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Iron sharpens iron. We need to be together. And if we truly have the Spirit of God in us, we're going to want to be there. I remember as a teenager, my mom was going to church three days a week. And I finally said to her one day, why do we have to go three times? Isn't one enough? I just didn't understand because I didn't have a relationship with Christ. But 20 years later, when I gave my heart to Him, all of a sudden the light bulb came on and I realized three days a week isn't enough. I need to be in the Word of God constantly, right? I need to be in worship constantly. Why? Because I love Him. Because I want to be with Him, right? And He is leading men and women today to make a commitment to Him. He's calling us back to Bible truth because of all of the deception that's going on and how Satan is trying to lead people away from God. So what steps should a person take before baptism? The first thing is we have got to repent, right? Isn't that what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 38? Repent and be baptized. And so before baptism, we must repent of our sins. And repentance is a genuine sorrow for sin. It means we're so sorry that we turn away from it. Let me give you an example of this. Years ago, I was pastoring a church. And I was new to that church, and I found out that there was a couple in the church that were living together that were not married. And so I went to visit them. And I asked them, are you married? And they said, no. I said, are you sharing a bedroom? They said, yes. And I said, you know and understand that the commandment says that if you are cohabitating with someone that you're not married to, you're committing adultery. And they said to me, God is love and He's going to forgive us. And I said to them, you're right, God is love, but God is also a just judge, And He's going to hold you accountable. You see, God wants to save you from your sin, not in it. And if you truly have the Spirit of God in you, He empowers you not to sin. But that means you have to turn away from it. And it's very unfortunate they became mad at me and they left the church. And I was very heartbroken over that because I'm not worried about their temporary living conditions. I'm worried about their eternal security. Right? And how can God forgive us if we are continuing in sin? We have to come out of that. That's what He's calling us to. And that's part of our journey of faith. Right? We have to see that. So repentance is being sorry enough for my sins that I'm willing to turn away from them. Number two, before baptism, we must believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. That He paid our penalty for us and that He can do what He says He can do. He says He can raise us from the dead. We have to believe it. We have to trust Him. If we've repented of our sins, if we've accepted Him as Lord and Savior, we're on a good path, aren't we? The third thing, though, is we need to learn. You know, there are churches today that if you tell them that you want to be baptized, they'll just do it. But the Bible is very clear that we need to learn what we're committing to. Because you are committing to Christ. You are committing to doing it His way and not your own way. And so there's some instruction that has to go along with Bible baptism. We can't just go and do it, we've got to make sure we know what we're committing to." And so if you understand the basics of biblical faith, the essentials of truth in His Word, then God invites you to make the decision for baptism. And during these series of meetings, you have been learning new truths in God's Word, and now it's time for us to make a commitment to Jesus and say, yes, I'm going to follow those truths. Now, you might say, well, Pastor, I've already been baptized. And so I would say to you, well, is there any instance in the Bible when people were rebaptized?" And I would say to you, yes, there is. The Apostle Paul was preaching in the upper coast of Ephesus, and there was a group of people that came to him, and in Acts chapter 19, verse 2, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And so the Bible describes how Paul sat down with them and educated them. He showed them that they had been baptized under John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance, but now... Christ has died for them, and now they need to be baptized to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the people were baptized once again, right? And if we want to walk in the light of God's Word, then there are two reasons to consider rebaptism. First of all, I would say this that if you once walked with the Lord, if you gave your heart to Him, but then the thorns and thistles and weeds of life got in the way, and you have fallen back into the world, you are doing the things of the world, then now you want to give your heart to Christ and you want to recommit to Him? You need to make a public stand and say, yes, I want to be rebaptized." That's the first reason. The second is if you are a committed Christian and you have followed the Lord for many years, but now you've come to a series of Bible studies like this one and you're learning more truth and you realize, wow, I didn't even know what I was committing to when I was baptized, or maybe I was just sprinkled as an infant and that's not biblical. Maybe I need to be rebaptized, right? And so there are biblical reasons. Maybe you're saying, you know what? I want to be a part of a commandment-keeping church and I want to be rebaptized. Those are legitimate biblical reasons for rebaptism. And I can give you an example of that. Many years ago, I was pastoring a church and I started studying the Bible with my mother. And my mother loves the Lord with all of her heart. She's followed Him her whole life. But she grew up in the Lutheran church. And I asked her, I said, Mom, were you ever baptized as an adult above the age of accountability? And she said, No, I was sprinkled as a baby. And I said, Mom, that's not a legitimate Bible baptism. And we had a Bible study. I went over to her house for weeks and we studied the Bible. And finally she said to me, you're right, I need to be baptized. And I had the joy and the privilege of baptizing my mother. And I'm telling you what a joy and a privilege it was. But then many years later, my mother attended a Bible study series like this one. And she started learning truths that she didn't know before. And she came to me one day and she said, I want to be baptized again. And I said, Why? I baptized you. I know your baptism was legitimate. And she said, But I've learned so much more. And I want to make a new commitment to Christ. And I said to my mother, If that's your reason, then it's a good one. And I'll support you. And I went to her baptism. There are reasons why we might want to be rebaptized. So, how important is baptism? Jesus Christ was visited by a Pharisee one night by the name of Nicodemus. The story is in John chapter 3. And he comes to Jesus, and I want you to notice what Jesus said to him in John 3 5. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot! enter the kingdom of God. He says you must be born of both the water and the Spirit. Now, remember I said there was a caveat on being baptized? I want you to imagine for a moment a teenager who decides to get baptized because all their friends are getting baptized. So maybe they don't really truly believe that Christ is is the Messiah. Or maybe they've never repented So what happens to that person? They go down into the water of baptism and they're a rebel. And they go down in the water and come up and now they're a wet rebel. Because they have never surrendered their heart and now they haven't received the Holy Spirit because they haven't repented. Right? And so there's a caveat to that. And we need to make sure that we are doing things in the right order and for the right reasons. Mark chapter 16, verse 16 says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Behold, now is the acceptable time Behold, now is the day of salvation. Acts chapter 22, verse 16 says, And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And friends, heaven is watching tonight to see what we're going to do. Are we going to make that public stand Are we going to stand for the truth? Are we going to show the recording angels that we are on Jesus' side and that we want to keep the commandments of God and we want the record to show that we are surrendered to Him and we're worshiping the God of creation rather than the beast? That's the decision that we need to make tonight. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And you will have noticed that every night I gave a call to make a decision. Sometimes it was just raising your hand. Sometimes it was standing up. Sometimes it was coming forward and we pray together. Sometimes it was just, let's pray together. And tonight we're going to do something different yet again. There on your table between those Bibles, you'll see a decision card. And I want you to grab one of those, every single person, and I want you to take it and write your name on it. Because this is something that's between you and me. They're going to gather these together and they're going to give them to me, but nobody's going to look at them but me. And this is between you and me and the Lord. And I want you to write your name on there, and then I want you to look at question number one. It says, despite the difficulties in my life, I believe in the righteousness of Christ to deliver me and create in me a clean heart. If that's you, check that box. The second question says, I understand that Bible baptism is by immersion only and is a symbol of surrender to Christ, death to sin, and resurrection to new life with Him. If that's your understanding, put a check or an X in that box. Number three, trusting in His power to save me, I choose tonight to fully commit my life to Him and be baptized. If you've never been baptized before or you've only been sprinkled as an infant and you see that that's not legitimate and you want to be baptized, put a check there or an X. Fill it in. Number four, I've been baptized before. But I desire to be re-baptized as a recommitment to Him and an expression of my restored relationship with Him. If that fits you, then put an X in that box. And number five, if you have any questions about baptism, write them down on the back of the card and I would be happy to visit with you and answer any questions that you might have. Now you're going to have all the time that you want to fill that out, but because of time, I'm going to go ahead and close with prayer. Father in Heaven, Lord, You are calling us not only out of the world, but You're calling us out of a corrupt religious system. You're calling us to make a public stand and say, I'm for You. I believe the Bible, and it's for me. And I want to be faithful to You And Lord, I just thank You for bringing us to that place. And Lord, You know every heart. You know everyone here. I just pray that You would impress upon each person what You would have them do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.